You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. One, two, three, clock, four o'clock, rock. Oh, wait, wrong show. I mean, uh, welcome to the 602 Club. I am just one of the hosts here. Uh, Matthew Rushing, and with me, I couldn't finish that song because we'd have to pay for it, but my uh, co-host, Christy Morris, it's great to have you here at the Sock Hop. How's it going? Monday, Monday. Okay, I'm going to (laughs) stop. It was too relevant. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, it is a happy day now that we're recording, and uh, we're going to... Finish our kind of like, uh, I guess we're like a little Lucas retrospective that we've been doing, looking back at his uh, mm-hmm. first films. And uh, so with us to do that is uh, John Mills. Hey, everybody. How you doing? I know you dream of being a Pharaoh, but we don't let everybody <laughs> in. You got to you gotta go through. You got to earn your way in. You true. Do, either Holstein can catch you or I can take you back and I can drag you around on the car. Or you can do this and become a pharaoh. <laughs> so great. I just love that line where he's like, I know it's every man's dream in this town to become a pharaoh. Oh, he says secret <laughs> dream. <laughs> secret dream is secret to be a pharaoh. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's so great. So great. Oh, well, we're going to have a blast, I think, uh, talking about this one and definitely back to some simpler times. But before we get into all of that, just want to thank you so much for joining us here in the Sitzo Two Club. Of course, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a star rating review. Let people know what you think of the show. If you like the show, that's the best way to help it grow. Honestly, uh, you can also uh, find us online on Twitter at Trek FM or on Facebook at Facebook.com/slash The Trek FM. There's also a listeners-only discussion group on Facebook called the Babel Conference that you can join and talk to listeners from all over the world about what's going on on the network and all the different shows we've got. Track.fm is the place you want to go online where you can see all of our podcasts. And if you go to the contact section, you can send Christy and I an email... And then that will come to us and we'll get to converse with you that way. Maybe you have some thoughts about what we've talked about in one of the episodes or maybe you have some ideas for different episodes or things you'd like to talk, hear us talk about, especially with the fact that as we're recording this, still no movie theaters really open. So not a lot of people getting to go to the movies or anything. So we've been going back and doing uh, a lot of things uh, that we have never talked about. So yeah, let us know what you would like to hear. Um, so, uh, You know, something that was really interesting, John, we talked about last week, you know, the history of the uh, the the first movie that George did, THX 1138. And it was really interesting for me because, you know, with this movie, it's not so much um, just like history, but like this movie has a lot of inspirations that are also very personal to George, and I think that's one of the things that make this movie so interesting to me because all of the main characters that we get are parts of who George Lucas is as a person, 
And this was basically George's life growing up in California as a teenager. Like this is in so many ways, maybe his most autobiographical film in what it was like for him to grow up in California as a teen. Yeah, no, I absolutely. I mean, the thing is that the film sort of owes its existence arguably to like Easy Rider where Universal has this unexpected great success and they say, okay, you know what? They make a commitment. They're like, we're going to make a bunch of films cheap. We're going to get these young directors out there. We're going to give them final cut. Although they're, of course, with <laughs> with American Graffiti, there's <laughs> a dispute there with Lucas as well, you know, and he later gets to restore and everything. But um, so, you know, he's riding this wave of young filmmaker that's been energized by Peter Fonda. And, uh, you know, so he rides in with this. And I think that, you know, while you're talking about inspiration, I think that it can't be. It can't be overstated exactly how influential American Graffiti is and and was and all of that sort of thing. It's really interesting because there's a timeline where Lucas doesn't do Star Wars. And this is his signature film. And what's amazing is if this were his signature film still, his most accessible, his most successful and stuff like that. It's still a tremendous achievement because, like you said, this is just him being very, very autobiographical. But at the same time, he's bringing in so many people around him, people that are going to become lifelong friends and collaborators that are going to have behind the scenes work that contribute to Star Wars, that contribute to other films that he does that are influences on him in terms of how he puts things together. I, I think that American Graffiti, aside from being autobiographical for him, is hugely pivotal in his the direction he takes as a filmmaker i i really think that this is where he figures out what works and what he's going to do going forward yeah i 100 percent agree and even though this was my first viewing of the film i had definitely heard of it before plenty of times and i don't know why i just didn't get around to seeing it until now but um yeah i mean you can tell absolutely that before with THX, he really, um, it was his first major venture. It was something that he felt like was a, an important piece. And I do think it was because of all of the things we discussed before, but also that it was something that, um, people found really jarring because he said himself even that people like to sometimes go to the movies to escape the depression of reality. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was firsthand the person that felt like after watching THX that I was more depressed. <laughs> so, you know, American <laughs> yeah. Graffiti is a there. stark contrast to that in tone. And um, it helps by bringing in that nostalgia of people from, you know, his age group that would be looking back on those golden years of their lives. I think that it really makes him note that for the future, Yes, it's important for your films to say something, but also to be more of an escape for people and have a, a deeper meaning in that way, not just um, like a cautionary tale. Right. And and I think I think that you're absolutely right, especially in the aspect that when he's looking back in this film, it's no accident that it's set before Kennedy's assassinated. Right. This literally, this isn't just the sunset of these characters. This is the sunset of that 
age of innocence that, you know, that such a tremendous psychological shock. I mean, Kurt wants to be, he wants to work for Kennedy Mm -hmm. and there's Vietnam hasn't happened yet. And all of these things, it it really does capture, you you can see why a film like this coming out in the early seventies strikes such a chord because there are so many people who, it's almost like they it's almost like this this type of film speaks to the idea that the happiness of my past was not a delusion that it actually was happy yeah. that i actually had a good time because it's so easy in the aftermath of life you know you, you take a couple of different steps your job isn't quite what you know all of that stuff you can look back and you can sort of wonder well maybe my life never really and it's like no 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 there are there's good mixed in there, no matter where it goes. Like there, there is good that has been there. And even if it fades, even if the sun sets on it, you know, there's still a sense of, you know, it, it's a touchstone. It is something that is, um, you know, what people can reconnect with and reconnect mm-hmm. through. Yeah. I think, you know, you saying that John is so interesting because, you know, that's one of the things that, Coppola actually kind of really challenges Lucas to do in the first place. Like one of his inspirations for doing this is Coppola is like, Hey, I want you to write a film that's going to speak to mainstream audiences, you know, because George is in that he's like, you were talking about Chrissy. He's in that kind of like esoteric, very uh, ethereal existential type of filmmaking with THX. And Lucas, you know, really embraces this idea and, his inspiration is what it was like growing up in his hometown of Modesto, California of, you know, the, the sixties teenage life of cruising. And like, I think what's so fascinating, like you said, John, there is a very interesting connection with like, this is the, like the late fifties, early sixties. This is the way an entire generation was experiencing something new where they had cars, they had music that was their own, and they had this freedom to craft something completely unique that had never been seen in human history, really, of this this culture of cruising and this this way of dating and everything that, again, this, is, this has not been done before in human history. You know, this is all new, and, and it's, it's very... I mean, looking back on it now, we think, oh, man, how how quaint, like how how um, pedestrian all of it is, like how how low key it all is. Um, But for them, this is revolutionary. Um, But at the same time, there's still such an innocence to so much of it. And I think that's something that really, again, John, you're so right in saying it, it. It's because. The world had not changed yet because Kennedy hasn't died and he hasn't gotten us into Vietnam just yet. And those are the two things that completely shift the culture from one place to another uh, in, a, in a way that, honestly, we're still kind of recovering from. <laughs> yeah, and and there's also, in terms of speaking to that innocence, you have, you know, we made reference to the pharaohs before. And the pharaohs, are the, they're the local toughs. They're the gang. And their crimes are what you could classify as existential crimes. Eh, they're robbing pinball machines, which is a crime, which is bad. You should be punished for it, but you're not stabbing anybody. And yes, you rock the you 
rock. You wreck the cop car, <laughs> but at the same time, <laughs> you rock the cop car. Yeah. Well, you do a little bit. No, but like you wreck the cop car, but it's not in such a way that it harms who's inside mm-hmm. necessarily. Right. You know, it's it's property it's shenanigans. It, it's like cool. <laughs> right. It's like cool hand Luke cutting the heads off parking meters. Yeah. Okay. It's a crime, but you're not. Okay. You know, we can re- this. This is something we can recoup from pretty easily. And, and the thing, but the thing is, like, it's very much. It very much speaks to a specific type of experience. It's a specific type of of lifestyle that Luke has had that maybe not everybody has. But I think what where the where the great success of the film is is that they still manage to craft a story that is, even though I didn't grow up in this time period and I I don't necessarily you know relate to everything that's going on. I can still relate to the idea of trying to get liquor before I'm old enough. I can relate to the idea of trying to look cool when the real cool guy is standing next to me. And, you know, the, just this idea of, of, um, you know, love and heartache on this big operatic tragic scale when you just want to look at Steve and, and just be like, dude, you're a teenager. Mm -hmm. Okay. Chill out a little bit about everything. Okay. Just, 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 you know, and then, but Kurt's also like too heavy and you want to say the same thing to him. It's like, stop thinking so much about it. Just, you know, get out there. And, and it, I, th- I think it's very interesting as well that except for the very end where they're saying goodbye to Kurt and he's getting on the plane, the one parental unit, parental type of unit that is presented in a positive light, a truly positive light is Wolfman Jack. And I think that on its own level speaks to how radio was such the connector for people in that era, that the DJ is the one that he, that Kirk goes to ask for help. He doesn't go to ask his dad. He doesn't go to ask the head of the wolf, the, you know, the, the moose lodge. He goes to a complete stranger just because he hears him on the radio. And it's that idea of sacred celebrity almost that, that Wolfman Jack, just by virtue of hearing his voice all the time, they imbue on him this uh this this wise master sort of uh sort of mantle yeah i mean that's a great point because you know that's another one of the inspirations uh lucas with this whole fascination he has with wolfman jack and i think one of my favorite things about the film is that part like you said john where you kind of see Kurt doesn't have anyone to turn to. Like, he's not turning to his friends either, you know. And he's turning to the one place who can kind of, like, get his message out there. Like, you know, you think about it. This is way before social media and all those type of Mm -hmm. things. So the only way he has to get his message out there is to go to the radio station and hopefully he can get this out there. So he can meet, you know, this this T-Bird driving blonde. And... It just, it's fascinating. And I think the thing that I love is the way in which Lucas, you know, he he crafts these different characters. So you have Kurt and you have John and you have the Toad. Um, and that each one of these guys is a representation of Lucas at a different point in his life. And, and so he's really... You know, like he he mentions the the idea of like Toad kind of representing his his more freshman years, really not lucky with girls. You know, he's got his racer life. You know, 
uh, where he's he's racing cars just like John and kind of thinks maybe that's going to be his entire life. You know, he, he thinks he might be a race car driver. And then you have the guy, the Kurt, you know, who's like, what do I do now? Like, I've, I'm not racing. I'm not, you know, in that in-between time of like trying to figure out who he's going to be. And, you know, I just, I think that that's the thing that really sticks with me is that this movie, you can see how the inspirations, Lucas really is drawing so much from his own personal experience of what it was like to grow up in, in the 60s and who he was at different points along that path. Well, you can't discount Steve, uh, Ron Howard's character, who stays in town and becomes an insurance salesman. He stays in town yep, and he's the true. respectable businessman, which is exactly what Lucas's dad wanted and expected. You know, it's that sort of idea of, no, I built this business. You're going to take it over from me. That's your life. You're going to stay here. You're going to be part of the community and you're going to be, you know, in with the community. But but the thing is, while we talk about these four main characters, I think what gets overlooked and actually, Christy, I wanted to, to talk to you about this is I think that sometimes when people discuss this film, they overlook what I think are very interesting and, uh, you know, I'm looking for the right word, but but very interesting and very robust female characters mm-hmm. uh, that are in there and how they represent. They don't represent just the you, you know, you have the Suzanne Summers playing the blonde and the T-bird. Who's that that dream girl that you're chasing sort of thing. But I think you have some very real female characters in here. And so I just wanted to ask you, Christy, like. How do you feel about that representation? Do you think that women get sort of a fair shake in this? Or do you think that they're put in a category sort of thing? I think that at first you kind of feel like, oh, they're being shoehorned into that typical, like, they're just props for all of the guys kind of thing. Um, But then actually they really expand on that and show you behind the scenes, you know, behind the scenes, I say in quotations, where Lori is in the bathroom talking to a friend. Or when um, Debbie is hanging out with Toad, it actually shows that there's so much more to them than being with that guy. And that, you know, it's kind of funny because you think to yourself because of the way that Toad is presented that, oh, he's never going to get a date or whatever. And, you know, what would this beautiful girl walking down the street want with getting in his car? But you find out that she's different. And she likes to, you know, be a little spontaneous and maybe drink underage, but it's still. She likes that rolled yeah. leather. Well, that, I know, <laughs> but that, but that's sort of that's sort of a gray area too, because the drinking age would have been eighteen at the time. Probably, I'm pretty sure. So, so maybe they were. We don't get a. Yeah, we don't get a declaration of of her yeah. age at that point. So we'll we'll say that falls into a gray zone. But she didn't walk in and buy it. So probably right. you're right that. At most, she's 17. But I like that, you know, after all of the things that happen with them, uh, she says, you know, when I think about it, even though tonight went totally off script of what we were thinking we would do, I had fun and it was different and it, it wasn't planned out every step of the way. And I like that they present that Lori, for example, is, yes, she's going to miss her boyfriend, but she also is trying to figure out what she wants as well. Mm-hmm. And she's not just going to roll over and let him say, I think that we should see other people. She's like, you're saying two different things here. You're saying we mean so much to each other, but I want to date other people. <laughs> well, I, I really like, I think that, that Lori has uh, a very important scene because when Steve says, you know, Steve is trying to talk her into 
finally sleeping with mm-hmm. him. And he says, don't you want me to remember you? And then it turns into a whole thing where she's like, "That that's all you want to remember yeah. me? But like, he basically invalidates their entire relationship in one thoughtless yep. moment. And um, I, I think that it, it's really, I think it's really a, a, an interesting statement, not just on the times, but on um, this idea, because, you know, this is right around the time that um, the, I, I'm trying to sort of like formulate the thought in my brain, but this time period too is right before that sort of liberation movement is going to be there. And you can see sort of the seeds of that in Debbie and Lori. And um, even the fact that Debbie is dealing with an obvious stereotype about who she Mm -hmm. is, you know, with basically guys walking by and, and insinuating her, her lifestyle and everything. And what, you know, it, because she simply lives the type of life that say a John Milner wants to live. People are much more harshly uh, judgmental of her than they would be of him going around and hooking up with different people and everything like that. And it's just like, it's one of those subtle things that I think is really interesting. It still seems to be a presumption, you know, that guys who have a lot of girlfriends at that age are, considered cool and like oh he's a player but you know he's awesome everyone wants to be like him but if a girl is the same kind of character that it's like oh she's a slut yeah it is still a problem you're absolutely right yeah well the thing i really liked you know you mentioned that that scene with Lori too is i love that she stands up for herself like Mm -hmm. you know and she stands up saying look my worth is way more than just us sleeping together Mm -hmm. you know and so she knows her value and she's not willing to sell that value for less than it's worth. And I think, you know, um, it, you allow, especially I think you're you know, mentioning these female characters, uh, especially with, with Debbie and, and Lori, they're also going on on their own journey. And you you get that journey with Debbie where she kind of realizes maybe her being treated badly by men is not the way it's supposed mm-hmm. to be because Toad right. treats her really well. And she appreciates that by the end. Like you said, Christy, she's like, nothing went the way we thought it was going to go tonight, but tonight mm-hmm. was fun. And I had a good time with you. And like, when was the last time that Debbie had said that about going out? Right. Like all the other guys she mentioned to Toad were that they were just rude and horny. And she was like, you know, nobody cares mm-hmm. about me other than what they, they look at. Well, and and that was something that I thought was really interesting just about what they do that evening and is that they do spend a lot of time just talking Mm -hmm. to each other, you know, before they head down to the point, (laughs) you know, and lose the car. Like, she, and and I don't know if it's just because Toad is very different in in the way he approaches things with her, but they begin to actually form a relationship based on something other than Oh, you're hot. Let's yeah. do it. You know, mm-hmm. and and I think that's that's really cool. So, um, you know, something that was really fascinating to me uh, about this movie is this is another this is one of those movies that kind of sets a precedent for Lucas going into Star Wars, especially. This is a really intense and tough filming process for him. Um, this, uh, you know, he's having to hammer out the script, work with the studio, 
Um, because of all the music they want to use in the movie, um, Universal, uh, Warner Brothers says no. And because it's going to cost about $90,000 for the music rights in the end that he wants. Um, Universal greenlights it. They give him the final cut uh, of the movie and then they take it away. And again, they cut four movie- minutes out of his movie. Four minutes seems to be George Lucas's bane of existence. Uh, and then, like, it's night shoots. So Lucas is exhausted because he's editing during the day. He's filming during night. The cast is not always the most helpful in the fact that some of the guys are getting themselves into trouble at night. They literally actually, uh, <laughs> they, they, uh, they accidentally, um, set Lucas's, uh, hotel on fire. Uh, Ford's actually even kicked out of the motel that they were at. Um, Harrison Ford, that is. Uh, and, hmm. Uh, Richard Dreyfus uh, gets a gash in his forehead the day before he's supposed to do his close-ups. I mean, it's just, it's a very long shoot for them. And again, Lucas ends up in a place where the movie gets taken out of his hands at the end. They they cut it four minutes and he's left frustrated because somebody else has tinkered with his movie. Um and honestly, what they cut out is ridiculous. Like they cut out, I think, is if I read the the scene with the the car salesman and Toad, mm-hmm. and I can't remember what the other scene is. But it's like, I how does that be- even change mm-hmm. the movie? Right? I you know, could, like, yeah, I, I could be wrong, but I believe that uh, all of if part or all of the um, junkyard discussion. Was trimmed. Ah, I think you're right. Yeah, and uh, I and the thing is, watching it, I think to myself, why on God's green earth yeah. would you cut this? This is an incredible scene because you're seeing. This is the first moment where you're seeing Milner being, uh, you know, uh, being uh, vulnerable, and yeah. he first talks about the fact. Yeah, all of these guys used to be the best, and I, I don't want to mm-hmm. end up here. Like he's he's afraid. He knows what the future holds. Like he's wise enough to know. But I think that also in terms of the production, uh, really important to note. Um, the first one is there's a credit in there. Visual consultant Haskell Wexler, and Haskell Wexler is a legendary cinematographer. But he's not just legendary for his work. He's legendary for the fact that he would always help people. And Wexler was doing his own work and they were having a hard time figuring out how to do the low light so that it looked, you know, because Lucas's style is I'm a documentary filmmaker. I want it to be natural light. I want to do all these things. I have to light really low. And Wexler was the one who came in and sacrificed his sleep and said, okay, all right, I'll help you out how to figure out the lights and everything, get this to work and everything like that. And then in terms of the music, uh, Walter Murch is back sound montage and, this is, again, a film where its use of sound and its soundtrack is incredibly pivotal because it wasn't just cost, but there was a lot of skepticism about a film working without any score, no theme, no nothing, just period music. And it works, and it works perfectly and it works brilliantly and i think you see the repercussions all throughout uh the rest of film all the way up to and including the fact 
that Reservoir Dogs, Quentin Tarantino's first film, you hear K. Billy's Super Sound of the 70s through the whole thing. And what's Tarantino's signature is essentially using, uh, you know, period music or or just music that, um, you know, from the the type of films that he he enjoys and stuff like that. And I think that even if uh, somebody like Tarantino isn't aware of the incredible impact that American Graffiti has in that regard, then, you know, it it's still there. It's still in the, you know, it's still in the environment he came up in that would have helped shape him. And so like American Graffiti is one of those, I mean, it's one of those soundtracks that's just so phenomenal because it is its own character. It's, you know, uh, diegetic music or whatever, but like, all the way down to the fact that when Toad is hot wiring the car and he looks up and you hear the big bopper, hello, baby, when, you know, he's like, oh, hey, this is my, co-. like, everything like that is such a perfectly chosen moment that, like, every single, like, you can tell how much labor goes into it. And that definitely carries forward for Lucas because he's a big evangelist about sound, that sound is half of the experience. You need to get that right. And this, you know, keeps them on that path. And so, you know, Wexler and Merch really had a huge, and, you know, Marshall Lucas editing, again, it has a huge influence on how Lucas starts collaborating with and figuring out how to get and ask for what he wants from the final product. Well, and part of that, you know, you you discussing the music is, you know, the music really shows how music becomes the soundtrack of our lives at mm-hmm. this point. Like popular music is the thing that took over, you know, in a way that it had never taken over before with radio and, and with the younger generation having their own sound, you know, and, and the way in which everything we know was changing uh, about culture and about the way teens uh, interacted with music, what it meant to them, the way, like you were talking about earlier, John, the DJ has that impact about what's hot and what's not when it's come to what's playing. And so the way that he utilizes the music here really shows just how important it is to all of these kids' lives and the way that they use the music and is that, you know, the music is always playing in the background somewhere, you know, when they're at Mel's, you know, when they're at the sock hop, when they're riding around in their cars, you know, they're all listening to the same station together. And so uh, it's just always playing somewhere for the most part. There are all very few scenes in the, in the movie where there isn't music playing. And then it's usually for a very important scene between some characters having a conversation that's going to matter. And I think that's just something that I really love here. And, it, you know, going into the film, Lucas was specifically picking out the songs he was going to use. Um, there were a few that he couldn't get. He couldn't get the rights to Elvis, um, you know, music. So... There are a couple of uh, notable exceptions, the type of music you would you aren't hearing here. But overall, you know, I, I think it really works. And you you also like and Milner even talks about this. You have the the growth of the music. He's like, you know, I don't go for that surfer stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he doesn't say it like that. But 
<laughs> you have yeah. the way in which rock and roll is changing, you know, um, and this is right on the cusp of the uh, British invasion, you know, and so rock and roll itself is evolving from where it was from, you know, like even mentions too, like it isn't the same since Buddy Holly died, you know, so you're, uh, you're getting this kind of musical education of how important music was to the lives of these kids and how it was changing pretty much everything we knew about, you know, dating and life and all of these things because music was having such an impact because it was constantly in these kids' minds, you know, like, and, and, and we do in many ways become what we listen to. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so this constant messages in their ears has a major impact of how these kids think, how they feel, what they're doing, all of, what they're pursuing. And you can kind of see that play out in, you know, the four different male characters that kind of make up the main cast in the sense of the people whose stories we're following throughout the movie. Right. And I, I have to agree too with where John was going as well with the fact that the way that they did the soundtrack for this movie or lack thereof really fits the tone and the genre of the movie that they're going for to begin with. If you're looking at something that's supposed to be nostalgic, you really are focusing on that, then this works so well with that. Even if they couldn't get Elvis or some of the other music from the time, all of them were songs that I recognize from that time period and love and look back on fondly. Um, and I, I do definitely see the moments where the music songs that they did pick perfectly fit the scene that they matched them with. Like I keep going back to the great pretender with Kurt sitting there in front of the store mm -hmm. thinking about life or, I don't remember what the name of the song was, but uh, they're playing it with a scene with Toad kind of thinking about his unluckiness with girls. And it's saying, why, 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 why? Yeah. I, I wonder why. Yeah. I, as you, as we're talking about, you know, the lack of Elvis, it's one of those things where I almost think that that is a beneficial thing because Elvis is such a strong cultural touchstone that, Anytime you hear it, it takes you out of that experience and you focus mm -hmm. on Elvis as opposed to what it's trying to underscore. Uh, there are a couple of times where it's been used exactly right. Uh, for instance, the you know remix of A Little Less Conversation in Ocean's Eleven, right? There, that's, that's pitch perfect, but it's also a spin on Elvis as opposed to uh, you know just a straight-up Elvis song. Um, but I think also what can really what this soundtrack can really speak to as well is, you know, we're, we're sitting here talking about how this is a, a, a shared cultural experience is one of the things that I think makes this accessible. Even if somebody didn't grow up in suburban California, uh, racing cars and stuff like that, even if your experience was different, the music was the same. So you could pick up from here and fly across the country to New York. And people were hearing that music too. People were hearing that music in Florida and in Chicago and in Seattle and all of those different places. And there's almost a sense of, um, on my own end, things are so scattered now and so instantaneous and so short lived that, I think it's really interesting that there doesn't seem to be that same sort of uh, musical glue. And 
it's interesting because I would almost want to look at it and say, is there some sort of a, a line of progression where you could go and you could see that waning and what, when did that switch happen? Because when I was coming up, music was still incredibly important and universal. And whether you were hanging out in Baltimore or hanging out in Philly or hanging out in uh, Tucson, everybody could say, Hey, the new song. And everybody knew that song. It was all plugged in. And I don't see that as much. I don't know if that's just because I'm not as plugged into the culture anymore, but it really seems that this film winds up being durable because you can see something that endured for a very long time. And now it's time seems to have passed. And that's, it's odd. It's disorienting. This is, you know, uh, the music that helped shape the entire generation. And there was that cultural touchstone that they had because um, there was a cultural connectivity together. It was a it's a cultural experience, uh, this music, you know, and part of that was because they didn't have a lot of other choices, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and and therefore with with having less choice, there was there was more of a cohesiveness to the culture um, together. There there was there was more of a. there were there were maybe two or three cultures in, in at that time when it came to like pop culture, you know. Now there's like a right. trillion, and you know, it, so uh, even just working with students um, as I do at the church right now, there is there's such a vast difference in in the the likes that they have, and you know. Um, all of them are so different in their what music tastes they have, and they're so refined in all of those tastes because they're so um, plugged into their own segments of the culture. There, there isn't that kind of overarching culture that we all have. The the shared culture it's gone because there is no shared culture anymore because nobody has to choose um, between just one or two. They have you know thousands to choose from you know and uh you don't even have to buy a whole album anymore you just buy a song you know so right i i think i think that's i think that's a huge thing i've been i've been an old man sitting on the porch about that one <laughs> for a long time you know whatever Come happened to my classic album what, what about 2112 by rush yeah. that was an album um it was <laughs> yeah an incredible well, okay okay before i get derailed there but uh you know like just just moving forward too like even when it goes into, because you mentioned the Beatles are shortly after this, the Beatles are still a big unifying thing. Didn't matter uh, where you grew up and it didn't matter where you lived. It didn't matter what your job was. It didn't matter what color your skin was. You knew who the Beatles were and you knew who Elvis was and you knew, uh, you know, and it just sort of like split over time. But you, st- you everybody knew who Michael Jackson was in the 80s. Right. Michael Jackson was the king of pop because everybody mm-hmm. knew Michael Jackson. There wasn't anybody who didn't know Michael Jackson. Right, um, and like the only fight sort of was between was it were you a Stones fan or were you a Beatles fan? You know, like that well, was I, the split in culture. I, uh, I think leaving the doors out of that conversation is a little rude, <laughs> but outside of that fact, you know, well, I'm it, just talking about the the general the, consensus. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your your British bias is showing. <laughs> I'm yes, homegrown I, I'm, American. Well, rock. I'm just talking about the, the <laughs> British invasion. That was I know, the argument. I know. I'm, I know. I'm just teasing. Um, Plus, it was the Beach Boys anyway. They were the best. So, it's an interesting argument. It's yeah. an interesting argument. Um, yeah, I just you know, I just it, I think this conversation is fascinating too because we do 
like when you look back at this film, you do really see this shared sense of culture that, you know, again, working with teens these days, they don't have that because they all are in their own little segments of culture. But to them, there is no shared culture. There's no shared culture with movies anymore, really, so much. There's no shared culture with television anymore. There's no shared culture with music. Um, and there's maybe, I guess, some shared culture with meme culture, you know, mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. whatever they've got. But, like, they, they just lack that cohesiveness. And I, I will say, I do think you can see that maybe some of the problems that that's created by having so many small little segments instead of an overarching thing that kind of brings us all together. And, and you know, maybe I'm just being nostalgic, but watching this, it does make me kind of miss the days, even when I was growing up, when there did feel more, there was more of a togetherness because of the things we shared, that we watched on television together at the same time because it was only live, that we listened to together on the radio, you know, all of the kind of stuff it's it's gone and we're we haven't found a way back to bring us back together yet and i don't i mean i don't know if we will well i mean it, it i think that it's it's more it's not about everybody having the same culture so much as everybody being able to speak the same language that, right yep, yeah like that's the point this this unifying music or movie gives people the ability from different walks of life to communicate with each other and to, you know, the same way that sports teams do, right? A sports team is supposed to unify a city because that they represent all of us and we're all together Mm -hmm. and we're all a bit. I remember going to football games as a kid growing up, you saw people from every walk of life and they were arm in arm after a victory. They, they, you know, before the game, they might have, you know, sworn they were bitter enemies. And, you know, I grew up in the D.C. metro area. So, like, you know, politics was in our, our bloodstream. But everybody left that at the doorstep for the, the sports games. And people left it, you know, it was at least a way you could talk. You could at least figure out who you were communicating with based on, you know, Milner doesn't like surfer music. Okay, well, he just told you something about himself, Right. But you had these these sort of ways to to communicate, as it were. But I think that there's also something really interesting going on just because of the fact that there's no I, – I struggle to think of another film that so successfully at the end when everybody – when you leave these characters and even when it tells you what they're – their eventual end point is going to be or their, you know, their future path or whatever. I, I struggle to think of another film that is as satisfying a journey with the characters, or at least as satisfying an ending. Like I think of something like dazed and confused. I was sorely disappointed with the end of that film. And the thing is, I'm, you know, I'm a link later fan, but that movie just doesn't work for me because I consider it as sort of like a, you know, it's sort of like an American graffiti that doesn't work, uh, especially by the end. So I, I, I just don't know. I mean, like, Chrissy, do you do you see any sort of films in this mold that that work as well or better uh, for you? No, I mean, I'm glad that you brought that up because I can't think of any, at least at the moment anyway. I think that it really does have even a specific moral to the story for each of the four main characters 
and that they really have mm-hmm. a good way of, although they haven't told you everything about their life from here forward, um, you know, they give that little brief at the end, but it really still feels like a complete story on each of them. And I like that, you know, there is that moral to the story. Like I said, for each of them, like, I feel like Kurt's whole story is that you can't spend your life constantly chasing after something that isn't real and that, you know, he, he can't decide whether or not he's going to go to college. And then he's met this supposed dream girl briefly and he keeps trying to find her. And it just seems like he's constantly trying to find something when he doesn't see what's right in front of him that he should already be thankful for. Like he's not like the Pharaohs in the sense that it seems like they maybe chose the easy way out. And, you know, the the thing that was presented to them at the time and they don't seem to have like a career ambition or maybe the money to be able to do that. Whereas he's got this two thousand dollar check that was just given to him. And he still mm-hmm. isn't sure if he wants to use it. And then I like, you know, like with Steve, that he's sort of the representation of young love and that there is kind of that point, I think, in a lot of people's lives when you have to decide, do I want to stay with my high school sweetheart or do I want to break it off and see what else is waiting for me? Or, you know, with um, John, where he can't decide if he wants to try for something more or if he wants to stay where he's at and keep doing what he's doing. But then I like that he is sort of the person that warns that you should be able to go out and be spontaneous and have fun, but don't be careless because that's how Bob ended up having a problem and his car exploding and flipping. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's reminding us of teenagers like to go and have a good time, but sometimes that can result in life-changing consequences. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned, uh, you know, Falfa's accident, because I think there's no question that that is Lucas exercising his own demon, because, of course, he had the car accident that waylaid him for a whole year of his life and changed the direction of everything for him. So I think that Falfa's accident is very much something where it's, I think it, it really, you know, you can't argue that that accident changed the direction of Lucas's life. And I think that's him reflecting on it and saying, you know, because you look at that and you say, wow, Falfa and Lori, they're lucky they got Mm -hmm. out of that. And he was lucky to get out of his. So I I think there's definitely, you know, exercising a demon in the, in that moment. You know, I love the way that these stories intersect, you know, the intersecting of all the stories throughout the the entire movie. And I think one of the thing one of the things that really struck me is how, you know, at least three of the guys, um, this isn't so much Toad, but, it, you know, with Kurt and Steve and John, they're all in this position of like glory days and it reminds me of you know uh uh the the song and and Mm -hmm. and uh you know with 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 kurt and steve it's like you know they're they're supposed to be this is they're supposed to be going off to college the next day and they're kind of reliving this one last glory day of high school uh and and trying to see if it lives up and both of them have their own demons they're trying to exercise in that kurt not sure if he wants to go to college. You know, honestly, he's he's just not sure about anything. He's not sure what he wants to be. He's not sure what he wants to do. And in some ways, Christy, like you're saying, the pharaohs kind of represent, do you take kind of the easy way out for him? 
and just like stay home and play it easy? Or do you take that big risk and that big mm-hmm. chance and go find who you want to be? You know, uh, you know, with like you were saying with Steve, like, do you search for something else or have you already found what it is that you've been looking mm-hmm. for? You know, and he has that question with Cindy. That's really his big question. You know, do I go sow my wild oats uh, and then hope she waits for me? Or is she really, truly what I want? Am I ready to make that choice? And then you have, like, I love, I I feel like, you know, you then you've got John, who's this guy who's kind of stuck in this rut of being the exact same person he probably was five years ago. You know, he's already graduated. Yep. He's past high school. And now he's just the guy driving down the strip that everybody's trying to beat in the car. And he doesn't really have um, a future. Uh, But you see a hint of the fact of his hanging out with Carol the whole night, which is probably my favorite part of the story. Because I think in many ways, it kind of opens him up a little bit to the aspect of maybe I want more from life than just this. Maybe I actually, you know, like he spends all that time with this little 13 year old girl and he teases her all night and he gives her a really hard time. But I think there's a part of him that maybe thinks maybe I want this. Maybe I could possibly want to be a dad. Mm -hmm. Like maybe I want a life beyond just racing cars. Like, so I thought that that was really, really fascinating. These three guys kind of having this, this existential crisis of like, who do I want to be? And, you know, in the end, that's the big question of our teenage years. Who would I want to yeah. be? Yeah, I, um, I, I'm presuming, I, I know Chrissy, especially, you definitely haven't seen more American Graffiti, the sequel that not came yet. out to I this. I have not seen it, so. <laughs> okay, don't, 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 don't. I'll wave, I'll wave you away. It's not a total disaster, but it's not, um, it's not great, uh, but just as a spoiler in that you do get to spend time with Milner before uh, his, you know, he's killed in the car accident and he actually is making a go of it uh, on the racing circuit uh, sort of thing. But getting back to the relationship side of it, in terms of things being autobiographical, one of the things I really uh, enjoy about going back and seeing both THX and American Graffiti and of course, we know the next one is Star Wars. Is when you look at THX and one one three eight in quick succession, you see how you throw these in a blender and you get Star Wars. You can see exactly the it's a straight line through. And then one another one of the reasons I enjoy watching these films is because I think that you see, and this is all due to to my friendship with Mike Schindler having this obsession with double features. But if you were to line up three days of double features, it would be THX and Phantom Menace, American Graffiti and Attack of the Clones, the original Star Wars and Revenge of the Sith. And you see that same sort of autobiographical march about Lucas and you have the big, broad philosophical statement. Then you have teenage years trying to figure out what to do with your life. And then you have, you know, the big, the, the big epic if you will, the big, you know, uh, spanning epic. But you also see, and trust me, I'm, I'm bringing this back to American Graffiti. There was some point at which I suddenly figured out that the prequel trilogy is Lucas's autobiographical retelling of his life. And 
because you have this this wonderkind who shows up and great things are expected of him. And you have THX 1138. And then you have this teenager who doesn't want to grow up, but he does. He wants all of the benefits of being grown up, but he doesn't want to stop being a child yet. And he's torn and he doesn't know if he's in love or not and all of these things. And that's, you know, and you pair that up with American graffiti. And then with Star Wars, you have the big technological, um, you know, hero's journey sort of stuff going on and um, this resolution. But I, I, when you look at these films, the prequels are Lucas's very long form, especially in Revenge of the Sith, apology, I think, to Marshall Lucas in some sort of way of accepting it and saying, you know, I see where things went. And I know why things turned out the way that they were. Apology might be a strong term, but I think it's definitely him talking uh, about those sorts of things. And where I bring that back is in terms of the relationship of Steve and Lori, I think that we have a some sort of small autobiographical tell of what's been revealed in later, uh, you know, behind the scenes books and everything that Lucas and Marsha had something of a uh, fiery relationship. They were in love. They worked well together, but then when they had arguments and they had disagreements, it didn't go great. And um, eventually they, they grew apart and you can't help but have this feeling at the end that even though Steve and Lori wind up together, they're going to regret this, that this accident that scares her into saying, I want to be with you. Steve, never leave me. And Steve saying, no, I'll never leave you. I'm going to be with you forever. You can't possibly project a happy marriage out from that moment. You know that it's going to be rife with trouble. And so I think that there's even an autobiographical tell there uh, for Lucas where he accidentally maybe uh, forecasts his future (laughs) in terms of uh, how his love life is going to go. It's kind of sad to think about, but I mean, it, it is. makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, it definitely, you can see what you're saying as far as the Stephen Laurie situation of ultimately, if someone does that, that he didn't intend on staying originally. He had definitely made up his mind, been accepted to the college, had everything ready to go to fly out the next day. So it makes me think that he's going to feel like he's settled for her and never be satisfied with his relationship with her because he'll always wonder what might have been. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I, I would play a little bit Desville's advocate because I, I can see what you're saying. Um, but because Lucas makes this before where things go, I almost wonder if they're just the couple who ends up, being relatively happy it's not perfect it's not you know but um are they the couple that you know because i having known people who are high school sweethearts that are Mm -hmm. still married and still very much in love you know um you know and and that they wouldn't have their issues or whatever but you know that they made the choice to love each other and they they chose each other over other things and like I guess the question would be for them, will they be the people that could be happy with those choices or would they always mm-hmm. just wonder? And so why, 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 <laughs> I wonder? Yeah, I, but I mean, I, I, 
maybe it's just a an ink blot test moment though because in retrospect anybody who has a relationship that goes sideways can look back and say eh, there were there were some warning signs i saw it coming i just didn't want to see it sort of thing but i think that you know i i like the fact that you see you know steve and lori there and you're like oh no they can make a go of it they can be happy but when i look at it they they had broken like they were broken up before this evening even mm-hmm. happened and the only thing that brings them back together is is a an experience that scares them that mm-hmm. frightens right. them right yeah yeah you which know. is not always the best time to right. make a decision <laughs> uh, i myself yes am, uh living proof of that um but <laughs> uh you know at the same time the kind of like near-death experience that she has and that he witnesses does that give them a moment of clarity or is it just fear? And I think that's that would be the question of their life, you know. So where it goes is is really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think it's interesting that we see the breakdown of these four guys and where they go, and the fact that you know um, Milner dies in a in a car crash, killed by a drunk driver. Um, you know, the fact that we see Toad, you know, he's lost in action in Vietnam. Uh, and then you've got Steve and he's an insurance agent and doesn't say anything more than that, but it, I mean, it doesn't insinuate that he's unhappy or happy. It just, you know, uh, and then Kurt is a writer in Canada. And so, presumably a, a writer in Canada to have dodged the draft. Mm-hmm. I would be willing to guess I, I, based on it, Kurt's yeah. personality so, type. <laughs> very, very interesting um, look at these four men and, and where their lives go off the choices that they make. Um, and so, um, but it does. I think it it just kind of leaves you with the different ways in which, and what I think is. I I wonder to me since this movie is so autobiographical, Lucas is that does he not maybe see his life through playing out in one of those four ways, mm-hmm. like that his life could have gone any one of those four ways, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. Um, and in many ways, you know, he he basically ends up being Kurt, right, in the end because he's the creative. Mm-hmm. Um, and but life could have also been a he could have died. He could have died in that accident. Yep. He could have been in Vietnam. Uh, uh, and Or he could have, you know, turned out to be the guy um, who just stayed at home and did his dad's business. Yeah. Yep. You know, like that he, he worked for his dad's company. So I just, you know, I it's so interesting. And I think that's what makes this movie so fascinating to me every time I watch it. Um, because I'm such a, a fan of George Lucas um, and I find him such a fascinating person. Um, yeah. And and it, I think the thing I people always talk about, and they get on George Lucas for not having feeling or emotion in his movies. And if you're you feel like that, I don't really feel like you're watching his movies yeah. very closely because there's so much feeling, there's so much emotion in this movie, and I can even see myself in all of these characters in some so many ways. And so, um, with all of that feeling. How are you feeling about your ratings for American Graffiti? And Christy, I'm so interested because this is the first time that you mm-hmm. watch this movie to see where you land. It's a perfect movie. I mean, you know, I we've yes! talked about that. George Lucas strikes again! We've talked about that maybe I'm a little too generous <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but I really think that this movie has so much going on with it 
that can't be understated. I think that it's sort of like you said, John, everyone can take something different from it. It is kind of like a Rorschach test to see how it affects you. Um, and it's really got this classic moral question of many moral questions that apply to anybody's life experience. And yet it can also be a look back at your glory days as well. You know, it's not a harsh look at what reality could be like THX was. It's more of a fondly remembering kind of movie. Um, and so I, I really think that there's nothing I would change about it except maybe the end. I don't think it necessarily needed the, um, you know, epilogue of telling where their lives are going to go. I think it could have just ended with like a fondly looking at the sunset as he flies off to college kind of thing. But that's minor potatoes. So I loved it. Excellent. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. (laughs) I've seen this movie uh, so many times that I have it practically memorized and uh, I never turn it off when I watch it. It's it, it, it is, and as I've gotten older, um, it gets more and more poignant and much more affecting. And as I look at, you know, my kids are not there yet, but it's not far. It's not, it's not as far in the future as I'd like it to be that they're going to be facing these sorts of decisions. And it's, it's daunting. It gives you pause. You know, th- this is the type of movie where I definitely want to, show it to them before they're in their senior year of high school to be like, okay, let's have a discussion about how, you know, decisions can change life and everything. So, but yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it's a perfect film. I think that if, if Lucas had um, retired after this, or if he'd made a flash Gordon adaptation instead of star Wars or whatever, it would have been perfectly fine for his legacy to be this mm-hmm. film. And just the idea that he then went on and did other stuff is in and of itself, mind boggling. So, and also, you know, more American graffiti isn't particularly good, but it is interesting in a lot of ways because you do have, you do spend more time with, uh, with Milner, you do spend more time with Toad and you do spend more time with Stephen Laurie and, you know, there are of course other characters and everything. And there's a twist on Toad's story. Uh, even then Lucas was being a little clone wars, little, uh, point of view with people's lives and their stories uh, at that but point. Do you, so, but I won't but spoil that. But do you that. spend more time with Harrison Ford in a cowboy hat? Not in a cowboy <laughs> hat, but he, do, he does make an uncredited appearance uh, at one point. And if you're watching for him, you okay. know it's him. Um, but he, I just, he's when in I there. first saw him, but it's very, it's very when I first saw film. him in this film, I have to say too, I was just like, oh, swoon. You know, I... You know what? Because uh, we mentioned um, like how I, in uh, in the making of Star Wars, the one from the late seventies uh, that was on videotape and everything like that. Um, that was my first exposure seeing any footage from THX eleven thirty eight. In that, they talked about American Graffiti very briefly, and they have the line that is burned in my brain because I watched the making of Star Wars, God knows how many times because we had the videotape <laughs> and I just watch it over and over again. Uh, they had him going. I ain't nobody dork. <laughs> and the girls cozying up and saying, ain't he neat? And then the car zooming off. And that is, that was burning my brain before I ever saw <laughs> the so film. That's so funny. So, yeah. 
You know, uh, I I didn't have this rated at five stars, but it's like four and a half out of five. And really, it's just because it's practically perfect in every way. It's kind of like the Mary Poppins of movies in that sense for me. Um, I don't know what keeps it from being five. Maybe it just is five. So, but this is such, I, I, I texted John while I was watching and I was just like, I forgot how much I love this movie. And part of it is because, you know, one of the things that uh, Lucas didn't do was make this sensationalized, oversexed, more violent. Like he, he straight up just made his memory of what it was like to grow up in Modesto, California. And, you know, George is not that far removed from growing up at that point, really. So it's not mm-hmm. necessarily completely romanticized mm-hmm. um, to the point where you can't trust it. Like that this is kind of what life was like. The saddest part about this for me is that you cannot go to that original Mel's Diner in San Francisco anymore. Um, it's not even there. It mm. just blows my mind. That However, destroyed this an absolutely uh, unrequited uh, dream of mine for some reason is right down the road at Universal Studios. I've never eaten at the Mel's Diner that is at Universal. Stu- I've been to Universal Studios. God knows how many times. And every time I walk by and no matter who I'm with, I'm like, I want to eat Mel's Diner. I don't want Mel's Diner. <laughs> All right, fine. And I promise you, I promise you now that they're open again. I'm going to march down there, and I'm going to have lunch there one of these days. I'm going to come down there, and I'm going to stay with you. We're going to go to Universal Studios, and damn it, we're going to go to Mel's Diner together. And Mm, That sounds good to me. And just pretend like we're in American It's funny you say that, that because when Michael and I went in 2017, we didn't go. Right? Like, Mm -hmm. you walk by it. And I. the thing is, I, I have a theory. It's because that Transformers ride sucks all of the joy out of you. That you walk out and you see Mel's Diner and you're like, oh, I just want to keep walking away Probably. from the Transformers. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that will not be John's recommendation is the Transformers ride uh, yes. Universal Studios. But we will have some recommendations for you. And so, uh, John, this week, what would you like to recommend to the listeners of the 602 Club? If it is okay with you, I'm going to recommend two things that sure. are um, – they are spiritual inheritors of American graffiti. They are undoubtedly um, directly influenced by and their structures are similar to uh, whole nine yards. Uh, one is called Cooley High. It's currently, as we speak, streaming uh, on Amazon Prime. And it, it – the way to spin it is imagine American graffiti, but told from the African-American perspective in Chicago in oh, the sixties. Okay. Uh, very good film. Um, poignant, very poignant at the end. Um, it's not phenomenal, but it's, it's well worth seeing. And then there's another film called big Wednesday, which is basically American graffiti told from the perspective of surfer culture in California. And it's, it is uh, written and directed by none other than, Lucas's friend, John Milius, who worked with him to develop Apocalypse Now. And it, it's very much a Milius uh, type of movie. It has um, uh, William Catt, Jan Michael Vincent, God rest his soul, and Gary Busey um, as surfers finding their way through the 60s. And so, nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, Cooley High and Big Wednesday. Uh, Cooley High was 1975. Big Wednesday was 1978. Mm. 
Okay. Um, mine actually this time is going to be something a little bit more mainstream, but I just felt like it really came up a lot in my thoughts lately as relevant again to what we're going through in society right now. And that's actually the movie Hairspray. So, uh, I don't know if hmm. either of you have ever seen it or the musical, but, um, I actually really love the remake of the movie that has, um, Zach Efron in it, but it's, mm, Zach Efron. um, <laughs> but it, it's really great because it comes across as just going to be a silly, shallow kind of film and show, but it ultimately is about integration and about how um, TV in the time of that was very um, color driven and that it ended up finally coming to a better place, but that it's something that we always need to look back and remember so that we can see where we came from and that we don't want to be in that time frame again of people feeling like they're less important yeah. than another race. And I think that it's really beautiful how you can kind of see yourself in the character of Tracy Turnblad, at least I do, of like the eternal optimist of like, well, everybody should matter and that, you know, we're all going to be there hand in hand trying to make things better and that not everyone thinks that way, but that that's ultimately the goal. And it's got beautiful music. Uh, Queen Latifah actually is in this one and sings. Um, and uh, John Travolta Dresses in drag. <laughs> there so, you go. Worth there the price go. of admission yeah. alone. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Um, I am, uh, so uh, I'm going to recommend something. Uh, I've been getting back into uh, Spielberg films, and part of that is because I just watched a documentary on HBO Max called Spielberg. And it's a two and a half hour documentary about his life and his films. Um, it's got, you know, people like uh, George Lucas, Brian De Palma, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, Tom Hanks, all, you know, so many people that have been in his films um, discussing his work along with Spielberg getting very personal about himself and his life and his, you know, his Judaism and his faith and his family. And it's just really, really good. Um, and you can see as he kind of talks about what kind of influences almost every single one of his films you can kind of see that play out. Um, I just re went back and rewatched uh, uh, Minority Report and uh, Saving Private Ryan um, because of it. And so, yeah, I just I had a great time watching it. Um, I have a new respect for, you know, Steven Spielberg and, and his work. Oh, I just rewatched Jaws too uh, because it just came out mm. in 4K. So, you know, I, He's a master filmmaker who, in many ways, has been the man who has been able to ride the line between art and um, commercial in a way that very few filmmakers have been able to do um, and do it quite successfully for the most part. You know, he, he's got his clunkers in there, but um, I just have a really fond respect for him after seeing that and uh, just really appreciate him as a human being and, and the things that, that he's um, he's done, uh, what he stands up for. Uh, for the most part. So, yeah, I encourage you. HBO Max, uh, it's great. Spielberg is wonderful. It's so worth checking out. So hopefully you will. Um, John, 
it's always a pleasure to have you back in the 602 club and you know for us together with christy to be able to talk through you know george lucas which is which is our man uh you know Mm. uh, it's been really uh, a joy to have you here to do that but um if people want to catch up with you see what you got going on where can they find you well, nobody wants to catch up with me, but if they are so possessed to try to, it is uh, Kessel Junkie on your social network of choice. Uh, I think I'm more fun on Letterboxd than anywhere else. Uh, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. And you can find me actually over on the nerdparty.com uh, regularly, uh, appearing on a show called Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast with you, Matthew Rushing. And it's actually a pretty good podcast. That's all right. It's all right. I mean, one of the hosts is pretty smart, but like the other one, I don't know. I don't yeah. Don't know. I mean, if one has good hair and the other doesn't, yeah. You know, so. That's hurtful. Okay, listen, you just crossed a line, buddy. You just crossed a line. Uh, oh, this yeah. is right. one of the best buds. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me, of course, on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok at Bespin Bell. And I do a couple of other shows aside from 602 Club. Uh, I do a show called Sabres and Spells with my friend Teresa Delgado on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network, where we talk about Star Wars, Harry Potter, anything under the sun. Um, and we'll have a new surprise soon. And then also I do a show Ooh. once a month with uh, friends called Planet Leia, which is five women from around the world talking about Star Wars. And that's on the Fanta Tracks Network. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero under the name Matt Rushing02. Uh, of course, I'm here on the network doing the orb with Chris Jones. When we get a chance, we get together and talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, aside from aggressive negotiations with the lovely John Mills, I also do on the Nerd Party <laughs> Network Owlpost with Drea Kaufman. And we're talking about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. And we're in the Deathly Hallows, so it's so cool uh, that we're making our way through the last book. I also do cinema stories with my good friend Courtney, and we talk about films through the lens of faith. But everyone, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 